Tune in. Tune in. Tune in. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game podcast by Golf Saudi. Hello and welcome along to another episode of the Power of the Game podcast with Golf Saudi. It's myself, Robbie Greenfield. Delighted to have you with us. And it's a very, very special episode as well because we're building up to the start of one of the most hotly anticipated women's golf events ever. It's the launch of the Aramco Team Series. It all gets underway 8th to the 10th of July at Centurion Golf Club just outside London. It's a unique concept. It's a team event, a $1 million purse over a series of four tournaments. And there's a team concept, an amateur, a draft, all sorts of exciting things will be unveiled over the course of this series. And I'm delighted to say we have a very, very special guest to preview it and talk about her own career in this episode. A bona fide legend in the world of women's golf. Her name is Anna Nordfist. She's a two-time major champion. She's won 11 tournaments worldwide, eight of those on the LPGA Tour. She's also a six-time Solheim Cup player as well. Anna will look ahead to the Aramco Team Series. She's had experience playing in Saudi as well. She's going to talk about that. She's also a Golf Saudi ambassador, so she'll share some insight on everything to do with the growth of the game in the kingdom. But first, like I've done with so many of the guests on this series, I asked Anna how she fell in love with golf. Well, listen, Anna, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, first and foremost. It is an absolute yeah, to have you. It's an honor to have you, Golf Saudi ambassador, two-time major champion, fresh off the back of competing in the US Open, and so much to get through. I want to talk to you about the Aramco Team Series. Uh, that's an yeah. exciting initiative. Uh, but what we've done with a lot of the guests, Anna, on the podcast is we've kind of gone back to the beginning of their golfing careers just to get an insight into how each of the individuals that's appeared on this podcast kind of started, started off in the game, fell in love with it, and ultimately ended up pursuing a career in it. So could, would you mind sharing your story with us, Anna? How, how did you get into golf initially? Yeah, so uh, I grew up with two brothers back home in Sweden, and we tried a lot of different sports. Um, we were always out playing and uh, it was soccer, it was tennis, badminton, I was swimming. And um, when I was 10, my brother uh, went with one of his friends and they uh, started playing golf. So kind of my dad and him took me and my younger brother out to the golf course. I tried it for a couple months. I hated it. It was just so boring. So I quit. Uh, probably never thinking I would do it again. And then when I was 13, uh, my mom said she was going to pick up golf that summer. And I, I guess a little bit of the competitor in me uh, refused to be the worst golfer in the family. So I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give it another go. So I was 13 at the time. So that's basically when I started playing golf. And I was really hooked. Um, I was swimming almost seven, seven days a week at the time. Um, was a very dedicated swimmer, but I was probably one of the most slower swimmers you've ever seen because I wasn't any fast and I never really got any medals or anything, but I just loved it. Um, and uh, so started picking up golf and it went pretty, pretty fast from there. I mean, I went to from down to 20, uh, 25 and handicap my first year and then down to nine, down to four and then down to scratch. So um just me and my brother spending all summers on the golf course and uh you know just just trying to get better and I think I I got really hooked on the game because it was an individual sport um and I could practice and play whenever I wanted and I wasn't depending on the team or um having a time to practice and it was kind of up to me how much I wanted to wanted to play and you know put the effort into it um so um, just having very supportive pa parents. Um, they drove us to tournaments all over Sweden. Um, the weather is, as you know, not very good in Sweden. So the season is only really from May to, I would say, September. Um, so we try to make the best out of it. A lot of the, the tournaments early on was down in the south, which was a was, which was a six-hour drive. So my dad and my mom would drive us probably a, a Friday morning early, uh, we would play a practice run for the tournament for the weekend, uh, the Friday afternoon. We would compete 36 holes Friday, 18 holes Sunday morning. Um, and then they would drive us back home and then we'd go, go to school on the Monday. So they put in a lot of effort creating opportunities for me and my brothers to 
uh, do what we loved. So um, then, I mean, I, I continue to get better. I kind of, I didn't really get on the national team till I was 17. Uh, I was on some talent squads, but I just really never got the chance. Um, and then one winter, I remember a lot of my friends, they got on the national team and I knew they weren't really better than me. I didn't really understand it. So that year I was very determined because um, I'm a I'm a player who's hating to lose and I don't really like to be a beat. So that winter really put in the time um, indoors and I think I lowered my scoring average by four or five strokes, which is quite significant. Wow. I got on the team and um, ended up getting the opportunity to compete, compete in Europe. Um, I won the girls British Open in 2000. I think it was 2005 and then ended up uh, doing well in a lot of the amateur tournaments um and from there I got recruited um to go to Arizona State University for college um to get green grass 12 months out of the year and have an opportunity Better to weather as well yeah pursue uh, my career um on the, on the LPDA tour turn pro eventually so um, yeah, like a great amateur career and just having a lot of supportive, uh, people around me and, and a lot of hard work. So, um, I left college after two and a half years and, um, went to Q school, missed the full card by a shot. And that time we had 22 events on the LPGA tour. So it was quite hard, but I ended up winning, um, I think it was my fifth start as a pro I ended up winning in majors so that was quite life-changing but yeah from that from there on like in 2009 it's basically been non-stop and here we are um a couple of years later and I feel like I have a little bit more meat on my bones and um definitely been fortunate to to live my dream and have the opportunity to inspire others by doing what I what I love well it's a great advert Anna for always giving something a second chance and also you as a late bloomer, I mean, you do not get many players that make it to the level that you've made it at who start the game at 13, first and foremost. Most pros, I, in, my, in my experience, yeah. start earlier than that. And then only to achieve yeah, I think, top, top amateur status at 17? Yeah, I think in this day and age, you know, it seems like everyone's starting so early. There's so much better coaching. Uh, I mean, you train speed from your six, seven years old and... <laughs> um there's just so much technology and other opportunities now so when people are 13 now they're so good I mean some of them are competing in the the U.S. Women's Open when they're 14 15 and um they go they either go to college or they turn pro when they're 17 18 and they're really good players so it's just kind of a very different era um I think also like for me not starting till I was 13 has made me um you know have such a long career I feel like a lot of um, a lot of players and you know when you bloom that early you're also going to crash at some point like when maybe when you're 25 26 27 and there'll be injuries early on and stuff like that so you know it's a kind of a blessing and a curse but like I'm I've had my career and you know knock on wood I haven't really had any injuries and I I want to keep going for another couple of years so um, it's hard to compare myself, but I am very impressed with the, with the young girls coming out. Um, I mean, the winner yesterday at the U.S. Women's Open sure. was 19 years old and, you know, obviously got it all figured out. So uh, it, it's very impressive, um, but it, it, it's not fair to myself or uh, to compare, compare myself to kind of the, the newer generation. But I'm, I'm proud that I started late and I gave it another go, like you said. And it got me to the point where I am today. And I'm, I'm very proud to be here. You're obviously very competitive and you obviously put an awful lot of work in, Anna, in the early stages. You know, you said your parents driving you six hours to go and play in tournaments. I mean, it's sacrifices that I think have to be made at that stage of your career. You know, we're talking about... Saudi Arabia now being in a position where they want to introduce mass participation. And I think, I think one of the catalysts, I'm sure you drew inspiration from, from golfers who you looked up to, it would be great for them to, to produce a, a kind of champion from the Arab world that they can look up to. And, and to do that, in your experience, what were the key ingredients? Obviously, you had the depth of the competition, you had your natural competitive 
uh, sort of tendencies in your work ethic, but what, what kind of, what, what were the key ingredients for you that you believe led you to have such a phenomenally successful amateur career and then a very, very impressive transition into pro? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's just, there just isn't any shortcuts. Um, you're going to have to put in the work and you're going to have to put in a lot of it because if you're not putting in the work, someone else is. So I think, um, you know, I've always had that. I, I always say that I never had the most talent because there was many girls that I grew up with that had way more talent. They were way better, but I had to work so much harder to kind of do the same things. Um, I think long-term that I just outworked them and that paid off in my favor. Um, and I mean, you're going to, you're probably going to have some sort of talent to be able to, um, you know, do, do this. But I think at the end of the day, you do have to work really hard. Um, you also have to have some opportunities. And I think that's what, you know, I think golf in Saudi will grow, um, you know, with this initiative and, you know, the amount of effort and money and support they're putting into the game, um, I think is very crucial to, to be able to create opportunities for players to do, to do this or to play golf. Um, it's just going to, it's just going to take a lot of hard work over, over years. Um, but that's, that's just how it is. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, in the women's game, there's a big influence of the South Koreans. And it kind of all started with Seri Pak winning the U.S. Women's Open in, I think it was 1998. And you've seen, I think we started seeing a lot of the good South Koreans. I mean, I kind of grew up in this era now, but what, 2010, 2011, 2012, that's when they start, uh, you know, really being successful. And a lot of people was kind of like, oh, where did they come from? But if you look at it, 1998, most, most dads or moms, they put their girls in golf. And then here we are like 10, 12, 15 years later, even now we were even 20 years later. And then now it's paying off because they put in the work so long for so long in the background. So it's now paying off. So I think this is what we're going to see in Saudi. You know, we have the initiative, we have the support, you know, Gulf Saudi is, is making a big push, just even creating opportunities for women to play um, and get into the golf. Um, and there's going to be junior juniors there that kind of see, okay, this is, this is kind of cool. Like, and then having the support, having great golf courses and, you know, there's, I think, I think we're going to, we're going to see, it might take a couple of years, like I said, cause it, it just, that's just the way it is. It's such a complex sport. It's not like a swimmer. It's like, it just, uh, I mean, either you have it or you don't like, so uh, I'm, I'm quite excited about it. And then I actually look forward to see, um, I know there was one girl, I think she played in the pro-am at the Saudi event last year. Um, a girl from Saudi that had quite a bit of talent. So I look forward to following her, her career closely. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, and you're mentioning South Korea. That, that's one of the, the all-time great national success stories in any sport, I think. The success that they've had among so many players in, in, uh, in, in the success that they've had in women's golf. But going back to your own story, Anna, and I, there was an interesting in the men's game not so long ago. I think Richard Bland won a European Tour event. I think it was his first win in 700 plus starts or something like that. And on the other end of the spectrum, on your fifth start on the LPGA Tour, you win the LPGA Championship in 2009. Describe that experience because that must have been surreal to, to have a decorated amateur career that you did and then you know, to get to battle through the, the Q school and then to get onto the LPGA tour and in your fifth start to break through and win a major, what was that like? Yeah, it was, it was quite the week. Um, I think having one on, on all, on all the junior levels in college and amateur, amateur in Sweden and amateur like globally. Um, I think that obviously helped me knowing like kind of how to win. Um, but then also taking it to, to the biggest stage in women's golf. Um, I know there's a, probably a lot of players or media waiting, waiting for me to fall apart that week, but I was really kind of in, in the zone. 
as they might call it. Um, just playing my game and, you know, playing really well on a really tough golf course. I've never been one of the longer hitters, and that's probably one of the longest courses I've ever played. Um, so for me to tackle that challenge and, you know, I felt like that week I, I not only beat the rest of the field, but I beat myself. And I kind of peaked, peaked my performance to the level that I was at. Uh, I might not have had the, the game back then um, where I could compete every week or on, on a lot of golf courses, but it was nice to see, um, you know, after having to fall really hard to even, just even get my tour card, um, cause I didn't have my full tour card. And just in order for me to get in, in that week, I had to, um, I had to do some Monday qualifiers. I got into a few events. I made some cuts and, just made a little bit of money just for me to get into the event. So um, just very, very fortunate and very grateful because that was kind of, uh, kind of nice because it gave me, um, you know, obviously a good start to my pro career, but also knowing that I had the tour card for the next three years, I didn't have to worry, uh, gave me, um, gave me a financial security where I didn't really have to depend on, on my parents working extremely hard just just to try to take some pressure off me so it will always be one of those weeks where I will I will be very proud and remember um not only because I won but because I that was that was kind of when I felt like I I got to the tour and not I had made it because my dream of coming to the U.S. was obviously to pursue a dream like as a professional golfer but when I won that event, it was like, hey, you know, I've worked so hard for so many years and it's paying off. Yeah. I mean, you were 22. You were, you were less than a year after turning pro and you were a major champion. What, what ways did your life sort of change that perhaps you didn't expect? Were there any challenges that you didn't foresee having had such a successful start to your career? As you mentioned, an amazing springboard from financially and giving your playing rights and all that kind of things. Were there any ways that the life changed, which, which presented a challenge? Um, yes and no. Um, well, for first, I mean, I obviously, I mean, I, I could have still been in school at that time because I, I decided to leave uh, college like two and a half years into school. Um, and I got a really question about my decision. My coach didn't support my decision and was, was quite as upset at me. Um, but I always believed in following my heart and that's what I did. So, um, while they went on to win the nationals, I won, you know, I won my first major a couple of weeks later. So it's just, um, it's just funny kind of how it works. Um, I would say my life changed to the fact that, I did get a lot more media attention um, on tour. They have these things called rookie hours where you have to do so just kind of learn how it works on tour. But uh, the tour ended up giving me a pass at the end of the year. Like I didn't have to do my rookie hours on the media training because I'd, I'd gotten enough. Um, but I would say it changed me in the way where I knew that I was going to have my tour card for the, for the la for the next three years, I was going to get into the majors um just having I mean that was like <laughs> professional golfer was like my first job um so just knowing you know knowing that you have the opportunity to play all over the world and um also don't have to feel like the stress of having to scramble just to make enough money to keep your tour card for the next year um I could plan a lot easier um I had a dream of playing a Solon Cup and I kind of, you know, I didn't know how I was going to get there. Um, but obviously winning, winning that tournament helped. And um, yeah, just, just that whole year in general was very special. I mean, I didn't miss a cut and I ended up winning the tour championship too uh, and playing in the Solon Cup. So um, just very proud. And it, it just shows that with a lot of hard work and, and believe in yourself, you can go a long way. Speaking of the Solheim Cup, I know you've got the distinction of hitting the first ever hole-in-one in the Solheim Cup. And, and it wasn't just the first hole-in-one, it closed out your match. I mean, is that the biggest single 
rush you've ever had on a golf course from any single shot? It must be, surely. Yeah, I mean, the same Stone Cup, I got to hit the actual first tee shot um, of the whole tournament. Um, I was playing alternate shot. I think it was me and me and Caroline Hedwell, we were out in the first match, and they always do, like, on U.S. soil, Europe gets to hit the first tee shot and, and the opposite. Um, yeah, so I had the, actually the, uh, uh, the honor because I was teeing off on the odds in the alternate shot, so I got to hit the first tee shot, and I think that might have been a little bit more of an adrenaline rush because it was just kind of kicking off the whole thing, and I think my drive went, like, a good 20, 30 yards further than normally because I was just so pumped up, and there was a lot of spectators and I think it was in our, um, uh, in our other like alternate shot match that we ended up, um, you know, winning 16 going after 17, which was on like a huge uh, height. Like, you, like I think the whole play 190, uh, but with everything with the altitude and then the, it was probably playing like 15, 15 yards down with elevation. So you stood up. So it was kind of like a stadium. So you couldn't have like planted any better. We just went one up with two holes to go. Um, I hit a good shot. It just never left the pin. And it was such a hard pin because it's all in the back corner. If you're a little bit left, it just runs all the way down. So yeah, it was, it was quite special. Uh, and that's also the year when the Europe won on one in the U S for the first time. So definitely one of the, the coolest experiences I've been a part of. And that's why, you know, when people say, or ask me how, you know, how golf, like what has golf given you in years? And it's just giving me so many experience. Like, I don't think you can, you know, or in so many adrenaline rushes and, and stuff that you, you just can't, you can't put a price on. Oh. No, no doubt. No doubt. And you've got some such cool, not only have you got all the tournaments that you've won, but you've got some really cool little records there. And that, that hole in one is, is an amazing memory, I'm sure. And speaking of the Solheim Cup, Anna, I mean, I've noticed particularly the last few editions, and I'd even include the fact there's been a little bit of needle between the teams as well. There's been a couple of controversial moments, but it's increased the attention on women's golf to such an, a degree, I would say, as an outsider looking in. What's your perspective on that? How much has the Solheim Cup driven interest in women's golf and the, the great camaraderie and the rivalry that that has, has kind of fostered between the two teams? Yeah, I think, uh, I think just the fact that it is competitive, like so competitive is probably a lot of, um, I think a lot of, not controversies or situations because kind of been blown out of proportions. Um, the thing that happened in 17 with the short putt and, basically Susan Pedersen getting all the blame for it for, for really no reason for following the rules. And, um, you know, stuff like that is not fair, but, you know, we, we might kind of hate each other <laughs> that week, but at the end of the day, I mean, it is, it is a great showcast of women's golf. And I don't think yet a lot of people realize how good the women's, like the state of women's golf is right now. And um, I think, the Solon Cup really brings out the best, best in that. I mean, 2015, we were in Germany, we had terrible weather. We still had quite a big crowd. 17, we were in Des Moines and it was like huge crowds. Um, I got to play Lexi there in the singles on the final day, um, which was, which was quite a match. Um, but it's just the atmosphere that you, you really can't, you can't describe, um, there's no bigger adrenaline rush stepping on the first team at Solon Cup. Um, winning a major is great. Winning a tournament is great. Like, but there's just nothing, isn't anything like it. And I think that's why everyone is so passionate about it. it. It brings out the best in them. You compete not only for your country, but your continent and, you know, for your teammates. So putting, you know, playing under European flag, there's just no bigger honor and, I've been fortunate to um, win a lot, of, like win a lot of trophies in my career, but there's just nothing that can describe um, it to the moments and the experiences, the the times that I've had playing on the Song Song Cup team. There's all, there's been a lot of talk both in the men's and the women's game as to how we can best utilize the atmosphere that those events generate and kind of perhaps diversify into different kind of 
formats and, and the Aramco team series is a great example of that, isn't it, Anna? Like, you know, there seems to be untapped potential for a more kind of partisan atmosphere in golf that we see it in the Solheim and the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup, but we don't necessarily see it in in kind of tournaments week to week. Does the Aramco series offer a bit of potential, do you think, to to kind of foster that kind of atmosphere? Absolutely. I think, you know, with the Aramco team series, it's, it's something different. Um, you know, most every week we play 72-hole stroke play. Um, sometimes it's 54 holes, but you see it on every tour every week. So it's kind of hard to differentiate yourself. That's why some of the team events we have a new one or a new one has been on for a couple of years, the international crown, um, where, where like the, the countries other than the U S and Europe get to get to play in a team setting too. Um, and it's just, it just makes a difference. So I think what, um, golf Saudi and the Aramco team has created, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna maybe take a little bit of time to grow and get a little bit of attention, but I think you'll, you'll start seeing things, this year, um, I was a part of the the first one there in Jeddah last year, which was quite exciting. I mean, you're playing with an amateur, and they're very nervous. Um, I think we had a 15 handicapper, but just seeing him hit one go- good golf shot or contribute to a team, like he was so happy. Um, so it's just it's just quite unique. Is you don't do it every week, so it's something that kind of breaks breaks up kind of the normal I mean you have the majors and and the regular tour events but it's just something fun exciting and kind of out of the box a little bit which I think is exactly what golf needs in order to create a little bit more um you know attention I think the women's game just isn't as fortunate as the men's game to have a lot of viewers on tv and, and some of the sponsorships and um, so I think it's great for women's golf that Aramco and, and Golf Saudi is doing what they're doing. And I suppose in a, in a way that gives it more freedom to experiment, which is a great thing. Um, but it doesn't have those tight contracts with, you know, with the PGA Tour, I would imagine most of those tournaments are so ingrained in the schedule now, it'd be very difficult to move them around or, or make changes to the formats. Whereas Aramco has come in with an amazing investment and it's just worked perfectly with the ladies European tour to kind of really give that a good stimulus. Yeah. Cause what, what most people don't realize is um, it's how, how much like the ladies European tour has, has struggled for the last couple of years, just getting people to believe in them, to invest in them. There's so many good golfers in Europe and it's been sad to see that there hasn't been as many player playing opportunities, sponsors having to pull out, not being able to put a lot of price money up. Um, so really what Golf Saudi and Aramco came in to do was created like five new events with the, basically the biggest outside of probably the British Open and the Evian, the biggest price money all year they play for. And also doing it in a, in a different different setting a little bit. You, you go from two events in Saudi Arabia and now they have one in London, Singapore, New York. So they're taking it all over the world, which I think it's, it's exciting because there is so much potential and there's so many good players in Europe and for them to have the opportunities to, to play. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing. And the amateur component, this is really unique. And I, as an amateur golfer myself, the first thing I thought was, whoa, I would not want to have any <laughs> that influenced a professional outcome in a tournament, but that could yet be a scenario, couldn't it, Anna? We could see a putt fall on the shoulders of an amateur whereby there's actually something serious at stake. Yeah, I mean, how would you feel playing oh, with three pros? I couldn't. <laughs> I, I just, I, I'd, I'd have to make someone else take it, I think. <laughs> But I think this is what's so this is what's so great about the game of golf. Like at any level, any age, um, you know, any handicap really, you can you can kind of compete in like on the level ground. And um, I mean, it's, it's quite cool for an amateur to see or to experience, you know, what life is like inside the rope with a little bit of pressure. You, maybe as, maybe as, a some- <laughs> as a pro, Anna. How do you, you're obviously in competition mode, you know, you are, you're focused, you don't want any distractions whatsoever. 
how do you kind of assimilate that amateur component? Because it's different in a pro-am where, you know, you let the amateurs get on with it and you're focusing on, on what you need to do. But when, when a, that amateur golfer is part of the team, it's, it's a potential disruption. How do you kind of block that out and, and make sure that the team can thrive regardless? Well, I feel like as you're like, as a team member of that team, like your, your kind of job is to make the amateur feel part of the team and make them feel comfortable. Because if you know they're comfortable, they're going to, um, they're going to do better. They're going to feel like they do enough and make them feel like they're contributing to the team. Um, you'll probably see some shots that, uh, you normally don't see in an event. Um, we do have, I mean, Adam playing on tour for 12 years and <laughs> having programs in most weeks, like, I feel like I've seen it all. So there's just nothing. I feel like a lot of, a lot of amateurs, a lot of pro am players, they come up and they think they're playing for me. It's like, Oh, I don't want to screw up for you. I'm like, no, look, like I'm here to have a good experience for you. And I'm trying to help you. Like you, I don't need anything from you. Like I'm just here to make your day better. So I think, you know, you crack a few jokes and, um, you see some people really nervous on the first team where like, look, hey, I'm not, um, I'm just a normal person. You don't have to be scared of me. You don't have to be intimidated of me. Um, because at the end of the day, we're just here to have fun and uh, hopefully we can have a great, great experience along the way. Can I just say that makes such a difference. I played in a few pro-ams. Some of the pros have been a bit aloof and I've just been, I've been a bag of nerves on the team because you're already... Yeah. You're you're anxious to play well. Obviously, you're in a situation where you want to play well and you don't want to disgrace yourself, but it really helps when the pro just kind of says something friendly and, you know, just kind of puts you at ease. That's an amazing... Yeah, of- we hear most of the weeks that um, for a lot of pro players that they've gotten to play with guys and girls, they say the experience they have with the girls is so much better than with the guys because the girls kind of, you know, uh, are more welcoming and you know, shaft more and make them feel part of the team where the, I think the guys are a little bit more, you know, mm. in their own zone. Or in their I, own can, I, I can confirm that. I can confirm yeah. that. <laughs> there you go. So the first event, Aramco Team Series, July the 8th. It's at the Centurion Club. There's a draft pick as well. So there's not only just an amateur, but the teams are being kind of drawn out in advance of the event. I guess you're very intrigued by how it's all going to play out. Do you know anything about the course? Do you... Uh, have you have you been told what, how the draft system is going to work as well? No, so well, I got to play in the um, in the first kind of a Aramco Team Series event that they they Gold Saudi hosted there in Jeddah at the end of last year. Um, and the way it worked out then was um, based, I think, based on ranking. We all we all had one pick, so we could pick one team member. I ended up picking Linda West, uh, Westberg from Sweden. And then we randomly got drawn another player. And then we got assigned um, an amateur to that to make up our team. Um, so I, I'm not sure how, how they're going to do it this time. I assume it's going to be similar. Uh, but that's what's kind of cool. It's like you don't pick your whole team. And you do get to play, get to know some other players that you maybe normally not play with. And especially not on the team. Um, so I'm excited to go to London in a couple of weeks. Uh, I haven't played a golf course, um, but I heard it's great. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of amateur golf bikes will be loaded with a, go- a lot of golf balls for that week, but I'm excited. Um, I will be playing the one in, in Jeddah later in the year and also the one in New York. So it's a fun foreman. I think, um, it's something different from week to week. So I think that's why I'm really looking forward to it. You're a Golf Saudi ambassador, Anna. Could you ever have imagined when you turned pro back in 2008 that one day you would be an ambassador for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? I mean, it's, a, it's, been, a cra- it's been a crazy journey to this point uh, for, for everyone involved in golf in the kingdom. Um, and how fast it's growing is, is, is just ex- is spe- spectacular to see and, and all the plans that they've got for the future. And, you know, they're not messing around, are they? They've got some serious plans for the future. Your own role in that, how did it kind of come about? And is it surreal? Is there anything that, that surprised you about the whole experience? Yeah, so, well, starting as a turning pro in 2009, I just, just never really 
had many expectations. I had dreams, what I wanted to accomplish. Uh, but for me to sit here, what, 12 years later, uh, and be a role model for others, I feel like that's a bigger accomplishment than anything else. And got into play all over the world, Dubai, Qatar, South Africa, Saudi Arabia now, um, Brazil, Asia. Uh, I mean, golf has taken me to places that I could never even dream of. And it's gotten me to meet people like I'm so grateful and that changed my life in more, more ways than they all would know. Um, but I've always been a big, big believer just because I had, you know, I know how important it was for me growing up to have opportunities and my parents tried to do everything they could to create opportunities for me and my brothers to kind of live our dreams. So I've always been very passionate about that. And then also seeing, um, seeing kind of the struggles with the European tour uh, over the last couple of years, not having uh, anywhere to play. Um, and I know how hard they work and how much money they spend just to, just to go play in those, those few events. So I really admire those girls. Um, I'm, I'm a player, but plays both in Europe and, uh, and on the U S tour, even though I'm based in the U S and, uh, it's kind of a main tour, but I really do care about the latest European tour. So when, when I heard about the initiative from, from golf Saudi, um, and I feel like their goal was to create opportunities in, 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 um, in Saudi Arabia, but in, I feel like it, it also, what, what they were trying to do was create opportunities for women all over the world, because that's ultimately what they're doing by, you know, investing in the latest European tour and creating all these Aramco team series events in Singapore, London, New York and Saudi Arabia. So I, I'm so proud to see what they've done. And I, I know last year, I can't remember how many it was, but if I think it was like 1500 membership, they gave away to females in Saudi Arabia, um, which, which was quite amazing just for them to start playing golf. Um, I didn't really know what to expect before I went down there in November last year. Um, obviously there's been a lot of talk about how women's are treated and, 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 and things like that. But what I, you know, talking to the locals and talking to females over there, they said a lot of things has changed and it's not something that we'll, we'll put in the news. Um, it's kind of an experience that you have to go, go and see for yourself. Um, but really how, how much they were pushing to create opportunities for women and, help grow the game there, but and also all over the world um, is something that I really admire um, and that I, I'm proud to be a part of. And when I was asked to be, be an ambassador, because it's something I stand for, you know, creating opportunities for, for women to pick up the game. Uh, they might not have to go to the, the, the pros, you know. I, I know how much golf has given me over the years and it's, it's, it's nothing you can put a, a price tag on, but the people you meet and the way you interact with people you probably don't, don't meet otherwise, it's just such a great, it's just a great game because of that. And to be an ambassador and to stand behind that and to see all the difference they make uh, for women over there, but then also from for a lot of women all over the world is, is quite impressive. Yeah, we actually spoke to Alex Armas on, on this podcast, the, the CEO of the, the Ladies European Tour, and she explained that the, the tie-up with the LPGA and, and Aramco support, Golf Saudi support, obviously, you know, the pumping a, a significant amount of money into these, these four events is, has, has just been invaluable in terms of, of actually sustaining and, and actually giving real momentum to the ladies European tour. Cause you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it is still the kind of, yes, the LPGA tour is, is always, and will always be the, the number one and by far the most powerful tour, but as a global operation, the LET, the, the LET can offer so much, can't it? Yeah. You have so much talent there. And, um, you know, I feel like the U S tour is different. I mean, there's a strong tour in Japan. There's a strong tour in, in Korea. There's the strongest tour, but, 
it's very important, I think, to have a, um, a strong tour in Europe too. Um, and what Gulf Saudi and Aramco ultimately did was create five more events. And that's huge because it's like five tournaments with over a million dollar uh, price purse per event. And I mean, one or two events makes a huge difference, but for, for, for those two companies to come in and, and put five more tournaments, I mean, that's life-changing for a lot of the girls and for the tour um, in order to grow. And I think also when um, other people will catch on knowing that there is um, great organization wanting to invest in the women's golf and I hope other other companies will follow and realize how you know how much talent and potential and you know the how much they can they can gain from all the all the pro-am experiences because it's it is new and that was the first I think the, that was the first professional female event that was hosted in Saudi Arabia last year yeah. um, which is huge I mean when I look back in 20 years and said I was part of that, like I would be very proud because I think what the world needs a little bit is like new thinking and you can't really be stuck in old, like you have to find new ways, whether it's, you know, new ways to sponsor or create those opportunities. Um, and I think that's exactly what they're doing. And um, we, um, we got to meet this, in the, in the problem, we got to meet this, like, I think she was the first DJ in Saudi Arabia, and she was so cool. And um, just, like, breaking barriers. Um, you think things are a certain way, but, you know, like, you meet these people, and, like, they kind of change your way, change your life in a way, uh, the way they think and the way you, you think, of, think of the world. So I had a great... I had a really great time, even though we were kind of on a COVID lockdown. Um, but the people that I met and just seeing seeing all these new ways of thinking, it, it's very refreshing and it's it's very exciting. Did it surprise you? Because going to a country, I know I was surprised the first time I went. I've lived in the Middle East for 15 years and my first visit to, to Saudi took me aback, in all honesty, because of the kind of warmth of, of the reception and the hospitality did did that surprise you? Because obviously it's been closed. It's not been a place that people would visit up until very recently. Um, when you first went to play there, your whole experience of being welcome there, did it did it sort of shatter a few misconceptions that you had? Definitely. Um, I didn't want to have too much expectations. And, you know, I, I told myself I was going to be open-minded. And uh, I'd seen a little bit of the golf course uh, from the, from when the men play there. Um, but I went there and everything was awesome. Like going from the airport, it probably maybe looked a little bit uh, like a lot of desert, like I expected it to, but the hotels were nice. The food was amazing. Uh, the hospitality on the golf course on and off the course was, was really good. Um, I was quite like really impressed with Royal Greens. Um, you basically they basically built a championship golf course in the in the middle of the desert and every hole had character it was fun um great shape um and those last couple holes i mean i think that's one of the best like four hole finish stretch there is in the world uh the way they they made those holes um so overall, like I had, even though we were weren't really allowed to leave the hotel, but I mean the beaches, the beach right by the the course or course and the hotel looked amazing. So I definitely left with a different different perspective on things, and just I think just meeting meeting the locals and kind of change changed a lot for me, and I've shared that experience with a lot of. Um, a lot of my friends and families and people I met who asked me about Saudi Arabia and, and how it was. And I think that's, this is what it's all about that um, goes out, like they're trying to put Saudi on, on the map and, and show, show how much potential it has. And, and I'm looking forward to, to see it grow. Um, 
I played in Qatar and I played in Dubai before, and we all we're all seen how much Dubai has grown um, over the years. I was the I was there the first time in 2009, and and now it's just total different. It's just keep building, and I think hopefully the same thing we're going to see in, in Saudi. Um, and I know I think Jack Nicholas is signing a new golf course yeah, there. Gidea and I think Greg Norman at Derea Gate as well. So there's there's amazing kind of uh, course designers and some incredible projects in the pipeline. And I think I've lived in Dubai since 2005, and uh, Dubai obviously had the Desert Classic and it's had the Moonlight Classic and the Ladies Masters as well. And um, it's had some fantastic events down the road in Abu Dhabi. There's there's events as well, but I think the difference that Saudi are doing is that they are engaging mass participation programs from the very start. And they're also focusing not only on the professional game, but the grassroots side of the game as well. And I think because, you know, uh, even in the last 15, 20 years, there's been, there's so many more different avenues into golf now, isn't there, Anna? For example, we've got a top golf here now at, uh, in Dubai that uh, is extremely popular and you don't have to be a golfer to go and enjoy yourself there. And, you know, maybe one out of 10 people that go there as non-golfers might actually take it further and take up the sport. There's urban golf, there's nine hole, there's pitch and putt. you know, I think the way they're kind of creating that infrastructure is quite, quite, um, yeah, a lot of foresight has been shown by them. What, what, what advice would you give them in terms of uh, encouraging mass participation at the sort of grassroots level? I th- I mean, I think they're doing, they're taking all the necessary steps um you have to remember i mean the professional is the top of the top but if the if we can use the professional event and the sport and the setting to get more people involved in the game i think we've accomplished a goal because i think that's at the end of the day i think that's what's most important like you said getting people into top golf that's never golfed before and kind of you know getting it fun like i always felt when I first started golf, it was a hard sport because it's like, if you don't have any family or friends that are in the golf, it's not like I'm going to go to the golf course and pick up a golf club. I, I don't feel like it's one of those sports where it's, it's maybe the easiest just to get into if you don't have the support around you. So I think that's what's really important to kind of create and introduce people to the game and um if they don't know anyone or uh, they can try it with a few friends and um they can have fun with it or you can have like i see a lot more like women's events where yeah they they kind of they play nine holes but it's the maybe going to the bar after or having a you know a spa thing like included so it's, it's getting more people involved in the game uh which i think is the exciting part um it might take a little bit of time but they have all like they have the vision and without the vision like i don't think you can get i mean you can go they're gonna go they're gonna go really far and i'm just excited to to be a small part of it and um just create a little bit of tension around it and i think we're gonna see great things a final question from me, Anna, that the growth of, of the women's game to me has really accelerated in the last few years. And, and obviously you mentioned it, you alluded to it earlier, the quality now at the top of the women's game is, is extraordinary. It's, it's extremely difficult to win multiple major championships, such as the, such as the quality of the, of the players. I think it's, uh, you know, it's testament to how many good players there are out there. In terms of sort of global interest in the, in the women's game, what are the areas that you feel need to be further kind of looked into and tapped into and, and, and in what ways is, is, is the sort of interest in the game going to grow and evolve over the next few years, would you say? Um, I would say, um, like, like not start, start people young, but I think, you know, as as young girls, we need we need good role models, and we need to see. Um, we need to get like a good experience about it, and by creating opportunities, because um, like I said, it might not be the easiest sport just to kind of get into unless you have um, a lot of support around you. Um, so I think 
you know, doing events for girls to have fun with it, like not make it serious um, so early on. And um, I know like some of my friends, they'll, they'll bring their daughters and they'll like, oh, hey, let's go to the golf course, have ice cream, and then maybe hit a few golf balls. Like golf is not the important thing, but creating a great experience around it. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of, um, you know, in any age, if you're by yourself, like you need to create a, an environment where everyone feel welcome and feel like, oh, I, I'm going to go hang out at the golf course. Um, you know, if that is because you have restaurants or you have they're showing some sports on the TV, but it needs to be a place where everyone feels welcome and everyone feel like they can go hang. And if, if you're by yourself or if you're single, like, it's such a great sport. I mean, to, to meet people, like I'm, I met my husband through golf and, you know, all the things that, that golf's giving me, that's, that's the greatest, you know, thing golf has ever given me the opportunity to meet him. Cause I, if it wasn't for golf, I wouldn't have met him. So I think what, what golf ultimately does is um, it creates an environment for you to meet, people all over the world and um if we can create good settings and for that if it's top golfs or if it's you know just just to have fun with it and everyone to um have a good um good time with it and i i i think that's that's what's at the like what's what's really important about this um competing is one thing and being a professional golfer is one thing but we all know how how great the game can be because it, it does connect people and you can go play anywhere all over the world and you get paired with with someone you have you have something in common that's and that's golf and that's um, you know you're gonna have a good time. Yeah, one thing's for sure. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens in Saudi in the next few years. I, I know you're as intrigued as, as anyone else to see what's gonna transpire and july the 8th the centurion club for the first edition of the aramco team series i know you're excited about that anna can't wait to see you back in the kingdom of saudi arabia as well competing at the royal greens golf club and thank you so much for sparing your time to chat to us on the power of the game podcast by golf saudi it's it's fantastic it's an honor to have you on and uh we wish you yeah, all the best of luck in the aramco team series thank you I'll see you guys in London. <laughs> Fantastic. Anna, it's an absolute pleasure.